welcome back to the Limited Upside Podcast. I'm Ben Epstein, joined in studio by SB Nation's own Tim Cato. Mike is actually out currently. He's dealing with bigger and better things in his life. So we wish Mike all the best. He'll be back soon. And then on the line, we have Kyle Newbeck from Philly Voice, formerly of uh, Liberty Ballers and someone who's been on here previously to dissect my favorite topic and one I wish we could do every podcast on. Right, Tim? The 76ers. All of them. <laughs> all of this them. is actually a 76ers podcast. Right? Yeah, yeah. The limited upside. If it was about the Sixers, though, we wouldn't put limited in there. It would just be straight upside. But um, h- how you doing, <laughs> Kyle? How's it going in Philadelphia these days? Uh, it is uh, just as interesting as it appears from miles and miles away. And I'm glad we get to talk without Prada throwing cold water <laughs> over everything that we have to say about the Sixers. That's, uh, that's pretty fun. Yeah, it is. It is. He's the biggest Debbie Downer. And especially when, when Mike is upset about the Wizards, that comes out on me and the Sixers somehow. So, Oh, he has to take it on Oh, yeah, someone. he's got to. Yeah. Yeah, somebody's got to be the punching bag, and it might as well be the Sixers. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So did you ever think that when you started covering the Sixers that you'd be covering the most fascinating team in the NBA? Was that something that you were uh, thinking about when you started with this? Probably how many years ago did you start with the Sixers, Kyle? Yeah, I, I guess I started covering them like really seriously, maybe around 2014, okay. right when all this was getting started. And it was <laughs> like, hey, this is going to be a pretty radical rebuild. But you had no idea it's going to become – on some level of cult of personality when Sam Hickey was here. It was a national talking point, even when they were just losing and losing and losing, which generally that doesn't really, teams like that just get ignored. Right. So right. that in itself was very unique. So now we're at a point where, hey, everything's supposed to be coming together. It's, hey, the, the, pro- the process is over, yep. some people said. And then the number one overall pick, <laughs> comes out and there's a, another gigantic saga yeah so, so it, we should, it's just we should talk where about do you that. even start with all that yeah like i was gonna say like tim and i were talking about this this morning tim was antagonizing me we were looking at a picture actually i think someone dan rubens sound like something i would do but uh yeah if you say so if you say yeah. so then I, I wouldn't mislead our <laughs> podcast listeners like this but uh tim's not sarcastic and not a troll when it comes to the sixers <laughs> both of those things were lies um so we were looking at some picture and there was a tatum and simmons were in this this photo and and I think Tim had some snide remark about, oh, look, the Sixers' two number one draft picks. But obviously he's just trolling us because this is all about all about Markel Fultz. And look, Kyle, you're one of the people who I've followed the closest of all the Sixers uh, beat writers uh, that I do follow you know, on Twitter and, and your various platforms you write on, Philly Voice being yours. Um, because your coverage of Fultz has been has been holistic. It has been, you know, fair in my in my assessment from an outside. But for you, forget what you see with his shot. You know, the way he interacts with teammates, coaches, etc. What has it been like stepping into, you know, reporting on a 19 year old, for all intents and purposes, emotional state? Because it, it doesn't seem like the physical aspect is what it is anymore, uh, or necessarily been communicated fully, truthfully. So. Talk to me a little bit about what it's like from your perspective covering something that is kind of outside the lines of basketball. You know, it's really interesting. I think part of the reason I've been hesitant, people ask me questions like, what's wrong with Fultz? What's what's going on with this kid? And part of the reason I'm hesitant to make any sort of declaration is because it is such a gray area. Like, I, I think no one on the Sixers would tell you that Fultz was never hurt. But I think they'll certainly say today, even if they point to the injury as the cause of what you see today, there is obviously now a mental component to this where this kid needs to figure out how to get back to where he was before. And so when you're having conversations with team personnel and people connected to the team and just the various 
people that you talk to to get a grasp on this, there is a lot of sympathy for someone like this. I mean, this mm-hmm. kid is a, a teenager who just a few years ago was playing JV basketball for DeMatha. Mm-hmm. So, and then he becomes the number one prospect in the country. He plays for a bad team when he goes to college and still looks great and is going to be this number one pick. And then he comes to a media market where they're really waiting for the Sixers to make this next jump. There's all sorts of pressure and he has this weird thing happen to him for whatever the reasons are. And it's just like, I feel for the kid. Like, I I don't know how I would react if I was put on this kind of platform in, in his shoes at his age and then have to deal with all the people. Like if I tweet out a video this afternoon of Markel Fultz shooting a jumper, it'll get retweeted a couple hundred times. I'll get all these people in my mentions quote tweeting and adding him like you're a bust at Markel F and all. It's like people are attacking this kid on some level. So I have tried to keep that in mind. Like I, I don't protect him to the extent that I won't hide if he, if he's shooting poorly, I have to share that. That's my job. But in the back of my mind, I know this whole time, like what we are sharing with the world and what is going on in what is supposed to be his haven is then used to, I guess, degrade and disgust this kid. And it's made me think a lot about what, to your point, what is beyond the basketball court? Yeah. Yeah, Kyle, like, I I think you have done a a really good job, you know, kind of being fair and balanced with this stuff. But like, I I think on on one level, like, like, none of us are qualified to cover this. We've never seen it happen before. Um, You know, we've talked about this before, but like, nobody has ever seen a pick just like lose the ability, you know, lose the thing that made him so good. And it wasn't, you know, I guess it was injury related, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a tangible injury. We all understand. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, right. a, a knee injury that like we, we get it, you know, he can't walk, he can't jump, he can't do these. It's, it's nothing like that. Um, and then I, then I do think it has dived into the mental issue at some point. And, you know, we're sports writers and, and we see these things pop up every once in a while, but I mean, certainly I don't know, uh, you know, how to cover that. I, I don't, I don't understand, you know, you know, what's going through his head or, or what like what uh, led him to this point where, you know, he he has a mental block maybe about shooting or he has this or that or, or whatever it is. Again, like I, I'm, I'm struggling even to come up with the, you know, the right terminology and words to, you know, kind of describe this very baffling, bizarre thing that, you know, as, as sports writers, you know, we <laughs> we're good at uh, we're good at watching people, you know, put the ball through the hoop and uh <laughs> And diagnosing why why that's difficult, but but for yeah. somebody to just lose the ability to do that is yeah. it's, it's a very strange strange circumstance, and uh, it it does kind of put you know us in a in a weird spot that that I don't think any of us are are accustomed to uh, to you know trying to assess, even though people look to us to, to try to kind of do that. Yeah, I also, yeah, and go ahead, Kyle. Tim. To your point, like even if like you brought up if this was a knee injury, if this was like a a torn labrum, even something like that, like another type of shoulder injury that we have familiarity with, then, then we could say, okay, that makes sense. And, but the, the diagnosis they gave him was a a scapular muscle imbalance. And so I, I had never heard of that prior to this situation. It's primarily a baseball injury, which makes it even more weird. And I spent, uh, I kid you not, maybe two hours watching medical seminars <laughs> by like medical experts on 
scapular muscle and just the, the recovery process, the retraining process that an athlete has to go through. And it honestly confused me more watching all that stuff. <laughs> but I just, I have no baseline for what we're going through. I mean, I've reached out to various medical experts to try to get a handle on this. And I don't, even that has not helped me with the, <laughs> with that part of it, let alone the, the various other machinations we're dealing with here. And obviously like the Sixers, even the Sixers coaching staff, you know, well, yeah, they've never gone through that either. So <clears throat> messaging has right. never been a a strength of this <laughs> particular uh, iteration of the Sixers organization. And I think, I think that's kind of what, what to, to codify this and say, why is this so unique? Players have had injuries. Players have had you know, mental hurdles, per se. But <clears throat> never on a team that's gone through you know, a redshirting process with multiple um, you know, first round or overall, not number one, but number three, number one overall picks, et cetera, in Embiid and Simmons. But, but also just like this idea that this is a team who's been really shady with how they've provided medical information. And this is something we've probably talked about together on this pod maybe two years ago when you came on. But like that has not changed. So the idea that one part of the organization, you know, Colangelo could say that he's 100 percent healthy, that it's not a health related issue. At the same time, Brett Brown saying until he can shoot, he won't be playing like those things do not run parallel. And so I think and, and you tell me what you, what you think, you're Kyle, but like. Everything seems to be a little bit amplified by a lack of trust in 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 the sure. communication from from the organization. Yeah, and I think so. Part of the problem here too is, I mean, you brought up the the history here, mm -hmm. but even with Joel and Ben, those are cases where it's pretty clear cut. It's like, hey, Joel has a foot problem; he yep. needs to get healthy, and then once he's back out there, he looks like Joel Embiid. Yeah. Ben Simmons breaks his foot in a freak accident at a training camp practice last year. Once he recovers, he comes back and he looks like Ben Simmons. Markel Fultz, on the other hand, has this weird injury that most of us had never heard of previously. The team declares him fully healthy as of early December. I believe it was December 8th or December 9th. Yeah. And we are now almost into February. We're like a week away from February. And he does not look anything like the Markel Fultz we saw either in college and in international play or even in high school showcases. Sure. So it's you're adding that lack of trust that people have with a situation that is so unique compared to even anything they've dealt with before. So it's just I can understand why people have all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories about what's going on, whether they think the team is lying, whether they think they're trying to protect Markel, whether he just is never going to be able to shoot again. Uh, everything is on the table because this is such an unprecedented situation. Yeah. I, I, can I ask you how the other players look around him and, and act around him and how he integrates with them, you know, in the pra on the practice court in, in whatever limited capacity that he's able to participate in the five on fives, given that he's not shooting. Um, I'd love to kind of know how the other players are, uh, even if you've spoken to anyone or, or what you just see from being at practice all the time. Um, you know, how, how is he becoming part of the team given all of the circumstances around this? Well, that's the damnedest thing. Like, yeah. You would never know anything was wrong based <laughs> on his interactions with teammates. I think he 
him and Joel are some of the best friends on the team. And obviously when you're friends with the best player on the team, that sort of makes life easier in terms of integrating with everybody else. But he's such an upbeat, positive kid. Like he's always got a smile on his face for the most part. He's, he's going back and forth and messing with guys like the other night, uh, after I believe it was, I think they either played Toronto or somebody recently, and guys are give, doing their post-game media availability. And Markel is, like, trying to weave himself into the media scrum and just make funny faces at the guys as they're giving interviews to get them <laughs> to laugh. And that's just kind of how he is. Like, he's a very – he's engaging with his teammates. He's He still has that, that happy spirit within him, mm-hmm. so you would never really know anything's wrong. And the coaches all rave about him. I mean, I've talked to Brett. I've talked to a couple of the assistants – they always say how much work he's putting in. I think he he puts in more work than we're able to see, whether that's with uh, trainers away from the practice facility mm-hmm. or just extra time put in before or after they have whatever practices they do. So as far as like from an overall character standpoint and just integrating with the team, they all seem to love him. Yeah. It's, so it's what it makes it even more confusing that this could happen to somebody like him. Yeah. I mean, I, I talked to him 10 minutes when he was with Washington, when he, when he came to Dallas, yeah, the, the Huskies did. And, you know, he, he seemed like, like the, the player, the player you just described there is, is like the same impression I got of him as a college player. Like, you know, that, and that's, that's the other weird thing, you know, we, we say, you know, maybe he does have a mental block. Maybe there, you know, are some issues that, that are preventing him from, you know, his, his jumper, his on-court, play but but like it, it doesn't seem to affect him as a as a person you know he, he certainly seems like you know the personality and, and you know the just the 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 bounce and the the energy is still there and you know i i, I do think that's a good sign uh, you know as, as as far as i know you know as, as we kind of covered before you know so so hopefully this is you know not a uh you know i i i, I guess i guess there would be I, I would be a little bit more concerned if, if it was the opposite way and it, it did feel like he was he felt weighed down by this but but I, I really don't get that sense yeah yeah and i i think these guys also see that they need to try to lift him up too like there have been a couple practices where jj reddick for example will be over on the far court with him just like getting in his ear and like mimicking some shooting motions like doing various things with them and so that shows like these guys are especially jj reddick for example he is on a one-year deal, could very easily be out of here after this year and could approach the situation like a total mercenary, basically. But even he is very invested in like, hey, this is one of our guys. We yeah. need to, whatever we got to do to just give him a little help, even if that's just spending five minutes with them at the end of a practice, they appear to be willing to do it. So I uh, I don't know what the jumper is going to look like whenever he does return, but I think from a, a team chemistry standpoint, he's doing just fine. Yeah, and I, I want to kind of use that as a segue to say, like, we should talk about Brett Brown because so much of this has fallen, you know, he is in charge of keeping that that cohesive unit together. I mean, look, they're 22 and 21, and this season could have gone in a number of different directions already, and, and it kind of has. It's already felt like, you know, to use like a, it's raining out here, like the microclimate aspect of of. The United States here, but like this has been a microclimate season. The Sixers have had some wild ups and some wild downs, and even within every single game they play, 
Um, today is Tuesday, I don't know, the 23rd of January on the 22nd, that Monday night. They blew a 15-point lead to Memphis. They're, they're up double digits in every single game, it feels like. Um, they are obviously, as I stated, 22 and 21, so <laughs> they're not winning all of those games where they're up double digits. But <laughs> uh, Brett Brown's a lightning rod. I mean, this is someone who... In the history of Philadelphia, we don't, uh, and I say we as so far as fan base, does not usually give a long leash to coaches. Um, we've watched guys like Bill Barber for the Flyers be Hall of Famers, some of the greatest players in franchises history, win Coach of the Year, and the next year be fired. Um, you've seen guys like Andy Reid be ran out of town after being moderately successful. Um, and obviously there's some ex- external circumstances around Andy Reid's departure. but For sure. But Brett Brown has has ingratiated himself in a way with the city that is a little bit different he's also you know he was the leader of of something where all of the responsibility of winning and and look most of winning and losing falls on coaches in any sport but that was kind of taken away for a few years the process itself the rebuilding the not having joel uh you know the signing your 10-day veterans for a few years if you will um that took a lot of the winning and losing pressure off brett brown but as we moved into this year and expectations started to change the multiple first round or number one and number three, whatever overall draft picks on this team, things shifted a little bit. So you go from that building phase to now there's some expectation setting. And I've always been someone who said, like, this year is not the year. Um, if they make the playoffs, that's a great building block. You might even say that is that is the goal. Um, but if they miss it, it's not like that should necessarily be Brett Brown on the chopping block. Now, with that in mind, like, I'm someone who always subscribes to the iceberg theory of coaching. And this is where I'd love for you to chime in here, Kyle, is that – 95% of what you see, the same way that the little bit of the iceberg you see above the water, that's called the in-game. That's coaching a basketball game. The rest of it is underneath the water. That's how you handle your players' personalities, run a practice, handle film, etc. Talk me through that 95% of the iceberg on Brett Brown that isn't the in-game, and then we'll talk about the seemingly every night 15-point collapse um, <laughs> and, and some of the more in-game things that we can dissect a little bit. But tell me about Brett Brown, the coach, and, and why he's been the right guy and continues to be for this pretty young team. So uh, I think number you hit on a couple of the points that I always bring up with Brett, but mm-hmm. I think the, the, the extent to which he has player buy-in is fairly significant mm-hmm. for a guy who, as you said, has not won a whole lot during his time in the NBA for reasons that were mostly outside of his control. But <laughs> Last night, for example, after that collapse, he came out and said the our star players didn't play like stars with a that was a jab at Joel and Ben because mm-hmm. they didn't have their A game. And Ben was asked about it and he straight up said he goes, He's right, we sucked and we have to be better. And yep. so it, he is at a point with his players where he can give honest from the heart criticism. And they don't take it as like, wow, our coach is trying to throw us under the bus because they know he has protected them at times this year when maybe they didn't deserve to. And so he's the I think the bond between them is is very close. I know Joel has come out and said after several different games this year that, for example, in the Boston game in London, he felt that the Sixers did not go down low enough, that he spent too much of that game playing from the perimeter. So after that game, him and Brett Brown had a conversation in Brett's office and they said, what can we do to, to get you the ball in better spots? How can we work on this to, to change our offense for the next game and maybe have a little more success? 
And they, so that was just a, they have an open dialogue. These guys feel like, hey, if I have a problem, I can go to Brett and we can get this done. So even beyond the those things, those personal relationship things where they obviously feel a closeness to their coach, they grade out pretty well in a lot of areas that they should. I mean, they have a top five defense in the NBA right now. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is just you have Joel Embiid on your team, but it's some of that goes on the coach. They put Dario Saric into the starting lineup earlier in the year. Even though he was struggling playing from the bench, you would think, hey, you don't give a guy more minutes. But since he's come into the starting lineup, that starting five, when J.J. Redick is healthy, has been one of the best five-man groups in the league. They Mm -hmm. kill teams on the glass. They've been awesome on both the offensive and defensive ends of the court. So that, I think, is a point in Brett Brown's uh, favor. So I just think, like, if you look at the big picture here, these guys all like and respect him. They play hard for him every night. I mean, they obviously have their their issues with – it's a lot of young young player problems. They yeah. turn the ball over too much. They're a little careless. They maybe are not as mentally tough as they need to be yet. They just don't have that game experience. But overall, I mean, like, I understand people want to put more pressure and expectations on this team this year. I think that's totally reasonable given the upgrade and talent. But – if you were expecting a lot better than a game above 500 through about half of the season, I I think maybe you just had a little bit of unrealistic expectations. Yeah, yeah, I think that's spot on. Like I, I keep coming back to overall record. They've had one of the hardest strengths of schedule. They've already played what all of their Boston games, all of their Raptors games, Warriors. Uh, Rockets, like they're probably the only team in the league that could cross off. I think they might have one Cleveland game left, like with the exception of that one game left with Cleveland. They've played all the top teams in the league. They have their Oklahoma City and Spurs games coming up. So it would lead me to believe, uh, and I would say that they've played all their Pistons games, but I wish we had 10 more of those. Um, But I look at this and think to myself, they are probably, if you were to say before the year, they're going to be the eight seed. People would be like, I'll take it. Great building block. Incredible step. And then you look at the parity in the East, and you think, well, shit, they will likely be into the last week of the season somewhere close, as close as they will be to the 12th, or I should say uh, 10th spot in the East, as they will be to maybe the 4th or 5th seed in the East, because there's just that much parity this year. Uh, and a lot of that stems from... Cleveland falling back a little bit, the Wizards playing under par, you know, the Pacers playing above average, but the Sixers I think are playing right around where you would have anticipated. They're also like their splits are uncanny. They're 11 and 10 at home. They're 11 and 11 on the road. They're 11 and 10 versus the Eastern Conference. Like they really are pretty much that standard right now, I should say like middling Eastern Conference team from a record standpoint. But my expectations and I think this is kind of to the to the point of the conversation, when you watch them play at their peak, which generally happens once a game. They'll go on or close to once a game. They'll have a run like they did last night, um, you know, like they've done in the previous few games. Even against Boston, they were up big, both Boston games recently. But they have these runs where you see that offense, or I should say defense turn to offense. It starts with Joel being pretty dominant. It, it goes to running, uh, you know, fluidly with, uh, with Simmons leading that. And, and ultimately, this is kind of where the variance comes. They make these runs when guys like Covington and Saric are hitting threes. They go on these lulls where they give up the leads when those same threes aren't dropping and you're working on eight-second possessions and maybe five in a row where Embiid doesn't touch the ball. So I think they kind of are where they where they should be. But I'll ask you this. Say they miss the playoffs this year. Does that affect Brett Brown's standing at the end of the season? Or say they make the playoffs, like how long is this leash in theory for Brett Brown winning and losing? 
I think it probably depends on how they get there. Like mm -hmm. if they played, if they just win and if they alternate winning and losing for the rest of the year, mm -hmm. then I don't think anybody's going to kill them for missing the playoffs. Like that's just sort of, okay, they got there. If they, for whatever reason, went on a hot streak, but then ended the year with a string of like a, the type of losses that the Sixers tend to have where they blow a lead and that's the reason that they missed the playoffs, then maybe, then I could see there being some real questions that he has to answer just because at that point, fan base animosity will be <laughs> at a at a degree that it, maybe they don't want to deal with anymore. But I think that would be silly unless it's, to me, it has always been about player buy-in with Brown this year. Like if there was any, there's any hint that Joel or Ben or if Markel had been healthy, if any of those guys had had yeah. an issue with Brett, and if that comes up at some point, that to me is the sign. Like, hey, it's it's time to move on. These guys are too important to the organization to be messing with something like yeah. that. Um, but I will say, like, with the blue and lead stuff specifically, I think Joel Embiid's presence sort of masks a lot of this team's problems a lot of the time they have very little creators on the team they have not very good bench depth and when he comes off the court they crater yep so i i think it's a lot of times it's just as simple as look they're not that good outside of Embiid yet and even joel is he's got the the turnover problem that is something that stems from his relative inexperience as a basketball player yeah so I could, I could use a guard who can break down the off, offense, <laughs> defense uh, off, off the bench. Yeah, I wonder if where they could find one of those guys. <laughs> Tim's wearing his Dennis Smith Jr. jersey right now. So hey, just got selected for the dunk contest. Did it? Nice, nice. There you yes. go. He's yes. a great dunker. Um, yeah, like that's definitely part of it. I, I keep thinking to myself right now, this moment, Reddick's out, Bayless is out. And instead of being able to say, yeah, we'll activate you know, this this 19-year-old number one overall pick um, who's apparently physically healthy, uh, it's, it's you know, bringing TLC in for more minutes, um, who actually played great last night against mm -hmm. against Memphis, but that's that's found. Um, that's not something. Yeah, he had that, an out-of-body experience yeah. in that game. Yeah, yeah he really did. I, I, I am curious. So, so you know, what if, if this team finishes on a, you know, like 20, uh, 25 and 13 record or something like that, mm -hmm. or or even just like you know two three years down the line, like what's what's the outlook for the Sixers to make the next jump? Sure. Where do you see that coming from, Kyle? I, it, honestly, well, number one, it's got to come from Ben Simmons being willing to shoot from further than 15 feet. That that's obviously a, a yeah. big point of debate around here. The other thing, it it, it almost has to be Markel Fultz, and it's scary to have to say <laughs> that if you're the Sixers right now, because I think even if they were being honest with you, they would tell you we don't know what's going to happen with him. Like. The, they believe he's going to get his jump shot back at some point, but they don't know when. They don't know exactly how to do that, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, because, again, we're we're dealing with an unprecedented situation here. But he is the guy that they were – that was going to be the, the third core member of this team. And yeah. I, I, I think moving up to get him to begin with tells you 
how important they believe his skill set is. And look, I, even this year, forgetting moving forward, they need more guys who can dribble. They just <laughs> they have so they, it's yeah. it's really infuriating to watch a basketball team that only has. I mean, it's basically Ben Simmons and T.J. McConnell sometimes. Yeah are the only guys that can create anything with their dribble on this team. And that is a, a pretty sad state of affairs. And that's, and you know, that's why JJ Redick was flanked by Chris Paul for, for years and years. And yeah. Correct. Yeah. And, and even to TJ, you know, that's someone who TJ has gone over and above. I think anyone's expectations that they ever had for him when he was an undrafted free agent. Absolutely. In this league. So that's like, that's found money. That, that is house money. If you will, that is Nick Foles blowing out the Vikings. Like that is, you run with that when you get it, but TJ took that long to run. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, we're it's the Sixers podcast. Um, yeah, but the thing <laughs> there is like, you know, getting that much from TJ. This team isn't twenty-two and twenty-one unless they've gotten that from TJ because there've been multiple games this year where they've needed his ball handling, his ability to get them into an offense to get the ball to Embiid. When Simmons and I, this is where I, I wrestle with Ben. The things I'm actually not as concerned with because they are so so much bigger and so much further down the line. Like, yes, his jump shot is one of those things that unequivocally will have to get better. It, it cannot be what it is right now. It is a non-existent. Um, even the way he finishes with his left hand is something that has frustrated me. Last night he had a very easy take going right to left, a little scoop with the left, and it looked like he had never taken a left-handed you know, finish before. Um, it was awkward. But with his right hand, he would have made it very smoothly. Those things, I put them off to the side. The thing that actually concerns me is I think that Simmons, and as someone who's 6'3", I played point guard throughout high school, it's great to be tall and be a point guard. It also means your handle has to be that much more crisp. Um, you have to be able to, to, to really feel the ball a little bit better when you are taking higher dribbles. And he's been careless in half-court sets with his dribble. Um, he's a great passer, but sometimes I wonder if he's the best point guard to be bringing them into the last three minutes of a game. And last night, specifically, I hate to keep referencing this Memphis game that I'm sure – no one watched outside of Sixers fans and Memphis fans, but you know they didn't get into the right sets. They had some of the worst possible late possessions in the game, and a couple of them stemmed from Simmons making what would have been the right pass in the first quarter, like the cross-court corner three pass to Covington. But in the last minute and a half, that's way too high risk. It takes you further away from the type of shot that you actually need in that possession and puts you in an immediate, fast-paced, helter-skelter set. So sometimes I wonder, and I'd love to get your thoughts here, like, is Ben the point guard of the future, or is he a great passing NBA player who might be, I don't know, better suited just as that kind of versatile player, a la Draymond or something like that, uh, as opposed to being like the actual primary ball has to be in his hands guy? Well, so I, I think it's hard to throw away the what the jumper <laughs> or how the jumper impacts that sure. when we discuss like how he approaches the game late game. So that pass to Covington that you bring up, for yeah. example, yeah. if if he is at a point of, with his game where he is confident to shoot even like a an 18 footer, I don't think that he rushes into a set like that. Like he's yeah. more content to say, look, we'll slow it down, we'll run our offense. We'll get a good look, and if I had to take a shot at the end of the shot clock, yeah, we'll do it. But because there's so much pressure for him to get his offense or the team's offense in transition, it 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 puts there's a lot of additional stress there that maybe wouldn't be there if he had that confidence. Like the the main the primary set that the Sixers run 
in crunch time is very simple. They run a two-man game with J.J. Redick at the elbow three. They kick it to Embiid, and if Embiid gets doubled, he kicks it to Redick, and Redick either shoots or <laughs> swings the ball. Yeah. So if you could put Ben in that role, and Ben can attack guys off the dribble or shoot as that guy there, that's a totally different ball game than yeah. putting J.J. Redick in that spot. Now, yeah. obviously – He's never going to shoot like J.J. Redick, but even if he's just an average shooter there, the confidence level and the type of crunch time offense they're going to run is going to be significantly higher. Yeah. And if you extrapolate that to the rest of the game, I think some of the some of what I would say about uh, his passing and his risk-taking, I think the trend for a lot of young players, regardless of whether they're 6'10 or 5'10, is that – playmakers tend the good playmakers earlier in their career take too many risks and but you don't want to have a guy who doesn't take enough because i think that it shows that they're i don't know they play scared or they're not willing to make that that high level creative pass that really can unlock a play and unlock a good defense so i can see both sides of that i do think they they do want Markel Fultz to be running a lot of the crunch time offense because he's a scorer in a way that Ben will never be. And he played with that mindset of, look, either I'm going to go get a a bucket or I'm going to find somebody. And I just don't know that Ben is necessarily wired that way. So I, I do think over time, he is going to cede a lot of those responsibilities to Markel. And that'll be good because then they can use Ben more as a, a post-up player where he's really good. They can use him as a, a role man or a screener or a cutter, which he's shown a lot of proficiency as this yeah. year. So it, to your point, it, just to be able to use him in more of a versatile role will be very good for him. Yeah, exactly. I love when he's off ball. Like He is a really good cutter. He's a good finisher around the rim with both hands. And he's also someone who puts the work in uh, pre-pass like he gets good position whether they get him the ball or not like that's neither here nor there but even last night like uh, there were ways and moments where like he drew an offensive foul uh, Harrison drew an offensive foul against him and then Ben did not go in an aggressive manner the rest of the game and it was it was like a little disconcerting to see but I completely agree I want to I want to table the shot because it's something that I know we will not get an immediate tangible change in um, right especially in season but you know, I, I, the critics will say, well, look, the dude broke his foot last year. He didn't break his right arm or his left arm. Like, what? when you're sitting on a chair working on your form, you know, what did that form look like? Um, and, and those are things that concern me a little bit. But I think the thing about this Sixers team is, and, and I want to get to kind of uh, a little bit of a capstone aspect of this, where we'll talk about expectation and what a successful season looked like to you before the season started and what it looks like now, because I want to hear about that. But this is a team who has three and I'm going to count faults in this, even though we don't know what it is, but he's a unique situation, right? There is no one like Embiid, arguably, ever to play the game. Someone who has his skill set, his personality, and his, his injury history. There's never been anyone like Ben Simmons either. People could say, oh, he's like, you know, he can maybe become a magic, or he can kind of play like I already use Draymond as, as some analogous player right now, but like, there's no one like Ben Simmons who's his height, who really can't shoot at all, who's living and dying in the lane, who might be you know, a transcendent passer, but can't even get the space now because, you know, you don't have to really worry about a shot. And then you also have Marco Fultz with his extemporary circumstances that we've mentioned already um, <laughs> and whatever that may be. So it's like, here you are writing about an NBA team 
if tomorrow you were to be moved, to, uh, you had to go to, I don't know, like Detroit, you would cover a regular basketball team that has a center and injured point I guard. I wouldn't even know how to function. <laughs> right. But this, exactly. <laughs> so here you are. You have to deal with a regular basketball team that has its own growing pains and issues like, you know, will they make a trade of the deadline? Like, is this the best starting five? Whatever it may be. J.J. Redick has a bone contusion or something like that. And then there's the, I got to talk about cases that are truly unique that there is no precedent for. Uh, and do that all together. Like, how do they ma- mesh off each other? What is it like to have someone like your center is your best shooter on the court most nights? Um, you know, your your point guard, you could hack a point guard any game. I figured last night that there was going to be an opportunity for Memphis to start hacking Simmons, and I worry about that every game, that I'm going to have to watch a four-hour basketball game because Ben Simmons can't hit free throws. And so I, I guess what I'm getting at is this is such a unique team. It's probably an incredible experience for for you to, have to get to cover something where you got to see it kind of grow from the the uh, in practice to the actual, or I should say in theory to the actual in practice, um, what has been the most, I guess, the thing that took you uh, aback a little bit the most about this team this year? Forget faults. Um, maybe it is seeing um, uh, Joel Embiid just play consistently and play at the level he has. But, like, what's something where you went into this year thinking this is not on my radar and now it's like uh, – you know, an omnipotent part of watching this team. Like, give me that one thing that maybe the casual fan or even the diehard Sixers fan just takes for granted, or or, or isn't necessarily focusing on that. You just kind of have more of a, a perspective on from being there day in day out, Kyle. So, I think what blows me away, and this may might not be the best answer to this <laughs> question, but I think it's just the amount of work that Joel Embiid puts in <laughs> just to be able, like. People see, oh, this guy doesn't play. He's out with a a back issue for a few games, or they rest him on back-to-backs. And it it makes it sound from the outside like, oh, this guy is like a – Brett Brown uses the phrase a borrowed stud at times. Like he's just – they don't really have him all the time. But the amount of things he has to do just to – to stay in stay in shape and stay healthy while they're managing this workload so that he's not putting pressure on his foot is staggering. I mean, he spends so much time in the weight room. He spends so much time before and after practice doing skill development with their coaching staff. Yeah. And I think it would be easy for somebody like Embiid who, look, the guy got handed a $140 plus million contract this year after only playing 31 games last year. That's the... I mean, 10, 15 years ago, there were tons of cases of guys who got too much too soon in terms of contracts, and then they sort of shut down, said, look, I got my money. Why do I'm already as good as I am. Why do I need to put in the extra work? But I think the, the time that Joel spent away from the game where he's just spending all his time rehabbing and trying to get his foot right really gave him a lot of perspective on, hey, this could be taken away from me at any given moment. Like, I don't know yeah. how long this career is going to last, whether it's 15 years or another 15 games. Like, I, I think he really doesn't know. So that guy puts in just a, a staggering amount of work just to be able to play the, the heavy minutes that he's played this year compared to previously. There's this misconception that he has – a minutes restriction, but you've seen that even the first night, Brett Brown says opening night, <laughs> Joel's going to be available for maybe like 15 minutes. I think he ended up playing 28 or something like that. Yeah. And that's been on the low end for 
what he's done this year. Yeah. So I, I think just seeing Joel become that that anchor of the team versus the he's barely there has been the biggest difference for me this year. And honestly, like it's hard to see that from the outside where he's this goofy personality. He's he's making memes on Instagram <laughs> and Twitter and just taking very subtle shots at his opponents. But deep down, that guy really, really cares about being the best basketball player he can be. It's it's funny because, you know, the, the goofy part, the, the memes, the Instagram posts, all, all of the stuff, is it's, it's the most accessible part of Joel Embiid. You know, it's the easiest yeah. thing for fans to latch on to and to, to talk about, to retweet, hey, oh, did you see what he posted? Oh, did you see what he liked? Yep. Did you see what he said behind, you know, Mark Hall Fultz in, a, uh, in an Instagram live? Um, and, and I do think that a little bit, you know, he's doing a, you know, it's, it just, it, it makes us forget how much of an anomaly, you know, of an anomaly he is not just, you know, obviously a six, three man who's athletic as him, seven, you know, seven, seven two, sorry, yeah. seven, seven, three man who's <laughs> I'm just, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but a seven, three man who, who's that athletic and, th- and that, you know, w- with the wingspan and just the ability to do the things he does physically, yeah. Um, but then just also the way he's picked up the game so quickly. You know, how many seven-footers have we seen who can't even make free throws? It's like he should not be able to be throwing, you know, cross-court court outlet passes to the opposite corner, you know, on the dime, and then continuing that run, throwing down an alley-oop or, or yeah. what have you. It's just the, the fact that he's done all this, and then, like you said, he's done it on top of, you know, not really getting much skill practice time in, in, yeah. the, in the sense, you know, for your, for your everyday big man or rookie or, you know, young player like him, you know, most of his time off the court goes into making sure he's healthy and making sure his knees stay, stay, uh, you know, s- keep, keep him upright. And that's, yeah. that's just, it, it still blows my mind how he's been able to do all these things. Yeah. He, he, he has, he's like a mystery when it comes to mm-hmm. the, the, like how you would describe someone's evolution as a player. Almost everyone has a similar story. In fact, Fultz is a little bit different being he was a JV player at DeMatha, you know, as a sophomore or whatever it was. Most players have been the best player on their AU team, on their high school team. Um, you know, with very few exceptions, there's, you can tell at a young age. When I coached 13-year-old AU, I knew like the two kids on the team were going to be Division One players. It was clear at 13 years old. There are late bloomers, but with Joel, you're talking about a timeline that's been so truncated. Like, comes to the states at what 16 years old, mm-hmm. plays as awkwardly as possible for one of the best high school programs in the country, behind better players at the time, plays a half of a year at Kansas. No NBA basketball till 31 games of incredible play that turned into what a max contract, like Kyle said. So, people, you know, we've had to make a lot of really important decisions with lack of information on, on this guy. And then when you watch him play, the thing that stood out the most to me, and you mentioned one of them, which is he was not a very good passer in his 31 games last year. That like it was there, the ability, the the way to see the court, but the movements diagnosing where a double team is coming from. It's something he still is getting better at, but making the confidence to make the pass the same way he has the confidence to take the shot uh, is getting there. But the two things that have stood out the most to me, and Kyle, you tell me if these go you know, congruent to the way you think as well, but in the last couple weeks, he's finally looked agile to me. Uh, the thing that stood Absolutely. out you know, at Kansas was always, for me at least, he made the basketball court look small and natural, which are two things that do not go hand in hand usually. Um, he made it look like the same way that you know a Durant does currently, where he just chews the court up. He goes to the three-point line to guard a perimeter player, and he's on his tippy toes. He's challenging. He's changing his stance from left hand to right hand wherever he's trying to push you, and he's doing it naturally from a, like an actual athletic stance 
I'll say like juxtapose that to the way that Carl Anthony Towns with no injuries and he's a great player, but when he goes out to the three point line to cover a wing, it's awkward and he's very upright and you can go right by him. In fact, Joel went right by him a couple times this year. When I watch Joel play now, I'm like, shit, he's at the three point line covering Terry Rozier or Chris Middleton, and it's a tough matchup for them. He, his agility coming back, his confidence in his own lower body to be there for him has been huge. But then the second part is he's just a really, really good shooter. And shooting is a reps thing. You just don't get guys his age at any level, at any position. You know, there's the anomaly of what Tatum's doing this year from a percentage standpoint, and that's regressing slightly now. But you just don't get young guys that shoot so comfortably from all around the court. Um, he used to be very specific to the left box where he'd like to have his post-ups. He's making the move to the right now, and he's done a good job of learning how to take the shot and make the move from the right block. And what I'm starting to see, and this is, you know, I always like giving player comps, but he's building a big man's Paul Pierce offense, which, which is <laughs> I have every move from 10, 18 feet and in, whether that's one dribble, three dribble, no dribble, pump fake, you name it, that it's so well rehearsed in his head that he sees the footwork before he has to do it. And these are all like savant things because they can't be about reps because he hasn't had them. And so like, I mean, you tell me, Kyle, those two things stood out to me. Footwork agility coming back in a big way, passing becoming to second nature, and then ultimately that his shot repertoire is so much more vast than I think anyone realized it could be at 23 years old. Yeah, I think for me, his work in the, the mid-range area is always so... It's funny to watch other fan bases react to it because I, f- I think I follow a, a good sampling of people from all around the country who follow different NBA teams primarily. Mm -hmm. And they'll see uh, Joel shoot, I don't know, like an 18 footer to start the game, a 15 footer where he's, he's jabbing against the other center and creates just enough of that separation. And they'll, they'll say to themselves like, Oh, well, if, if Joel, if Embiid's going to shoot jumpers, maybe the, maybe our team has a chance tonight. And then he hits like six in a row and it's, oh, wow, maybe this guy, actually, we shouldn't let him do this. And once the defense reacts to that, where he's hit a few in a row, they close out on that pump fake, and he drives by him and dunks or gets mm-hmm. fouled or what have you. And, and you're right. It's it's such an impressive offensive repertoire for a guy who has, by his own admission, earlier this year, he said, I probably have played less than 100 actual basketball <laughs> games in my life total. Like it, it, and this is a guy who's one of the most impactful players in the NBA. Yeah. Telling you this, a guy who originally claimed he learned how to shoot <laughs> from watching white people on YouTube. Like the, 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 yeah. and I know some of this is like like he's hamming it up. That's yeah, who Joel is. But but then you combine that with so I brought up his work ethic before. Mm-hmm. I think what gets taken for granted the most with him is that he has the usage rate of a a top, top end NBA star, like pushing up towards guys like when DeMarcus Cousins was in Sacramento Mm -hmm. or Russell, maybe not peak Russell Westbrook levels, but but right in that top echelon alongside the, the guys who had the biggest offensive burdens in the league. And then he goes back on the other end, and he is the anchor of an elite defense. Yeah. And I, I don't think there are very few players that do either one of those things, let alone both. Like, all due respect to somebody like Rudy Gobert on Utah, the guy is an unbelievable rim protector. He doesn't have anywhere close to the same responsibility Joel Embiid has yeah. on offense. Then you look at somebody like LeBron, like, 
LeBron at his peak was a tremendous two-way player. And to this day, he still has a huge, huge role in Cleveland's offense. But you can see on the other end of the court, he has lost a step there. He has lost some of his, I guess, attentiveness on that end, you could yeah. say. There are extenuating circumstances there. But <laughs> there are just there's are very few examples of guys who, I mean, Kawhi Leonard would be one in a different way, yeah. but he hasn't played this year. It's just so rare to get a guy who has that sort of impact on the game at both ends of the court. And someone who, by his own admission, cares that much about both ends of the court like to me defense I I put a lot more stock in how much guys care about defense than almost anything else because I think you can deal with guys who have limitations as athletes and put the scheme them right put them in the right positions to succeed you can't make guys want to play defense that's a thing that has to come from within them it's it's fun to score it is a lot less fun to chase guys around screens or, as you said, be a big man and chase wing players and guards around the perimeter and prevent them from getting to the rim. That that speaks to somebody's basketball character in my mind. And so that I think the what he does on both ends just reflects well on who he is as a person and what he cares about on a basketball court. Yeah. Then those are the traits you're looking for in leadership as well. And I'm sure Brett Brown would tell you, like, I look at the top defensive efficiency teams in the league. You know, if if you're arguing against Brett Brown as a coach, it's tough because the other top teams are what I think most people would tell you are the best coaches in the league. That's Celtics, Spurs, Warriors, teams like that. And then right between the Warriors and Spurs is the Sixers right there, Brett Brown. So I I think that there's a, a philosophy and a control mechanism to defense which does reflect on coaching and communication on the court that sometimes is a little bit bit more loose on the offensive end where there's a little bit more fluidity and 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 kind of like ad lib um which does sometimes go out of the coach's hands uh for brett brown or even for joel when the ball (laughs) pun intended doesn't come into his hands um which happens sometimes too frequently uh towards the end of games but um no this is this has been you know informative and interesting man you're obviously your perspective is is great and i wanted to kind of Close with a question we got here, and I'll pose it. Uh, my friend Bino, who's a diehard Celtics fan, but also a, a, a true good basketball fan, shot me this question this morning. And it said, you know, who would you want to see if you're the Sixers? Assume you get the 6, 7, or 8 seed, and that the top three seeds are fluid right now. What's the best case matchup for the Sixers first round that sees them making it to the second round? Should they make the playoffs? Who, who do you want? So we're just talking about purely winning? I'm, I'm talking about that winning a first round matchup who do you want to see? Well, I, le- I even as bad as their defense has looked, I have no, I have no desire to see LeBron James in the playoffs. See, so as an I NBA writer, that's the right answer. Yeah, no doubt, personally. Yeah, but I, I don't want to see him. No, yeah. no um, I guess it's between because. They're going to be in one of the bottom seeds. I don't think they're yeah. going to be able to make a run where it, so it would be between Boston and Toronto. Yeah. And I think selfishly for lots of reasons, I want to see them play Boston. <laughs> I think they probably would have a tougher time weirdly enough against Boston because historically over the last few years, they've had a, they have a lot more difficulty with guys who score by committee like they they always used to get their asses kicked by those hawks teams yeah the spurs generally give them a lot of problems i just 
I don't think that they're really best equipped to deal with teams like that because they just don't have a lot of defensive depth. So got, when they have to play guys like Jared Bayless or Luau and these other guys, they're a little bit out of their depth. And I think that they would be able to deal with stopping a couple guys as they would have to do in a Toronto series. But I really want to see them play the Celtics because my brand would go through the roof <laughs> if uh, they somehow managed to steal that series from Boston. And I could just troll the uh, yeah. very sensitive Boston fans about Joel Embiid <laughs> throwing out Warford into a dumpster. For so you're saying that you want two Philadelphia sports teams to lose in the playoffs to a Boston-based team? Oh, get out of here. Not going to happen. <laughs> Not gonna happen. <laughs> no, I, I, we, all, we all we need. Yeah, we are all we need in, indeed. I, I'll say this. like I love the idea of getting like an early taste of what could be the next, I don't know, eight years of Eastern Conference marquee playoff basketball. Um, God, I'm always willing to take my chances with Toronto in the playoffs. Uh, you know, that just kind of goes without saying. I also love the – like, Valanciunas doesn't want anything to do with Embiid, and then all the other backup bigs, although athletic on Toronto, are small. Um, God, I also think about him like, man, Kyle Lowry always tries too hard when he comes to Philadelphia, never plays his best, would like kind of see that. From a, I think the team we have the best chance of beating would be Toronto, but I agree with you. NBA Twitter would be electric for a Sixers-Celtics um, first-round matchup. And, and ultimately, like, if it goes seven, that's a win for the Sixers. If the Sixers win a couple games and, and eventually lose, it's still a win for the Sixers. They made the playoffs. Um, Celtics were the number one seed last year. Uh, but if I'm going to be 100% here, because this is a limited upside podcast, and I said before the year, as Prada made fun of me, I think the Sixers could definitely beat the number four seed Wizards should we make it to the five. Miami's currently putting a little bit of an <laughs> issue in there, but I think I would love to see the Sixers Wizards. I think it would be awesome. We could ultimately end this whole Wizards experiment that's given them almost nothing anyhow. You could end this podcast, too. You would not survive. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that, you would not that survive too. the series. <laughs> um, yes, of course, of course. So that'd be fun. Obviously, I'm selfishly rooting for that, but I don't know. <laughs> um, cool, man. So, uh, Kyle, what, what else is coming up next, man? What else can we look forward to uh, reading from you? Uh, it's listen. There are <laughs> twists and turns every day with this team. I'm I'm asking, I'm talking to lots of people about Markel Fultz to see if we can eventually get to the bottom of what's happening here. Uh, I've got some things in the works where I'll probably make the argument soon about where Joel Embiid fits into the Defensive Player of the Year picture because nice. I feel like there's been very little discussion of that awards race relative to the others this year. It always tends to get lost, but I, that's actually probably my favorite <laughs> award to track of all of them because it's it's one of those things where I think that's the award where you really have to watch guys on a nightly basis yeah. to get a, a real read on their impact. So I, I like diving into all the, the film and seeing guys like Draymond. And I honestly, Kevin Durant, I think, will be there this year for yeah. – what he's done on that end, so look out for something like that coming nice. soon. Well, you did a good job of promoting Joel Embiid's starting spot in the uh, Eastern Conference All-Stars, or I guess the All-Star game now that East and West won't be delineated. Um, so good job on that. Lead the charge for the Defensive Player of the Year, and let's get Joel a uh, first or second team All-NBA, and I think we can call this a good year. I think the Sixers would be a little mad at me if I did all this because that's the only way he can get that super max is if he hits one of those benchmarks <laughs> this true. year. It's true. So, uh, so I'm sure that they'll send me like an angry email or two if I end up leading the the campaign that gets in that award. <laughs> you just can't make him happy, huh? 
<laughs> that, well, listen, I, all I can do is report the facts. <laughs> if that gives him another $10 million, that's just good for you, JoJo. Yeah, no, that's, a good way to, that's a good way to leave it here. Reporting the facts, something that Philadelphia 76ers as an organization, eh, sometimes they struggle with it. But that's why we have great beat writers like yourself, Kyle. So we really appreciate you coming on, man. Um, obviously, when my first thought was I want to talk Sixers. You were the first ma- uh, name that came up. Tim, appreciate you uh, sitting in here. Welcome to New York and, and come again soon, I guess. I don't yeah. Know. All yeah. right, cool. Um, thanks, Kyle. Appreciate it, bud. I think. <laughs> thanks for having me on, guys. Of course, man. Take care. And then, Tim, you might get that invitation, I don't know, sometime down the line. <laughs> but until next time, everyone, this was the Limited Upside Podcast.